0: And turning to the old or the New Testament, rather, Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter seven, Mark chapter seven is where we'll be this morning in our study. Uh, over the years, I've had some opportunities to preach in countries other than the United States, and many of you have made trips like those with me. We've taken groups from our church to a variety of places around the world, and a lot of times when you're preaching outside of the United States, you'll preach through an interpreter. So I'll make a statement. The interpreter will receive what it is I've had to say, and then he'll say it. And it's kind of an uncomfortable process. It takes longer because I talk, and then he talks, and so that adds about twice the time to a sermon, so you kind of scale it back a little bit. And, and then you're always wondering if the people are really receiving what you have to say. In fact, I've had a few times I've wondered if the interpreter and I were preaching the same message, you know? I've said three or four words, and he's gone on for three or four minutes, and I'm thinking, what is he talking about, you know? I said, good morning, glad you're here, and he's still going on and on and on, and and uh, it's kind of uncomfortable, and so when I had the opportunity uh, a few weeks ago, many of you know, to go to Australia to speak there, I thought, finally, a foreign country where I can speak a language that they will understand. We speak English, they speak English, of course, they, uh, uh, they, it's a little different than our English, but close enough, and so I thought, this is going to be absolutely great. But I discovered even then, when you're speaking the same language as somebody else, it's possible to still not communicate. We came to the final uh, night of the meeting, and I was speaking the final night, and I, I uh, don't like to eat before I speak. And so everyone got together before the service, and I didn't go. I didn't want to eat, and so I got done uh, preaching, and the pastor of the church asked me, he said, Are you hungry? I said, Yeah, I am. And he said, Well, at this time of night, all the restaurants are closed. I'll take you to the mobile. That's what He said, What I heard was, I'll take you to the gas station, that has a mini-mart, you can get a bag of Doritos and a Coke and that will be your dinner. And I thought I'd rather go to bed hungry than go to bed with a bag of Doritos and a Coke on my stomach, and so I told him, I said thanks, but I'm not that hungry, don't worry about it. Well, I didn't understand that although mobile does sell gas, it's got the equivalent of what we might call a Denny's, and he wanted to take me out to eat and spend some time with me, but that's what he said, that's not what I heard. And so I went to bed hungry and he went to bed thinking that I wasn't very friendly we cleared it up the next day but I I, I wasn't hearing what he was saying another occasion on the same trip I was teaching a session in the daytime to some of these pastors and I was using the analogy in ministry of you got to get the timber to the mill so it can get from the mill out into the marketplace and I was trying to use this analogy and and uh, in the big picture I said a lot of times there are log jams that prevent movement in, in ministry it, it prevents progress and so I taught a whole lesson on the log drink log jams in ministry and how as pastors we can look for these things and and uh, when I got done one of the guys came up to me and he said uh, good on you mate and uh, that's what they say over there, you know, and I said, good on you. And uh, uh, he said, I got a question for you, mate. And I'm like, all right, what's your question, mate? And he said, uh, uh, what's a log jam? And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I just did my very best. With all the energy I had, I really prepared diligently. I thought, I don't want to go on the other side of the world and not say anything that's helpful. And I did my very best to make a connection, but I failed. We're studying the topic of worship And many times as we seek to have that intimacy with God, that closeness personally, we we think that if we put the right effort out, that the connection automatically will be made. What a shame it would be to worship and have it be a vain experience. Our study's been entitled, The Heart of Worship. We've learned so far that there is a right and appropriate way to worship God, and today we're going to learn there's a wrong way as well. Now, lest anyone would say, well, Pastor, you're getting all negative on us, I want you to know the command from Scripture is that we would study the whole counsel of God, and that means there are times when there's a great example in Scripture from which we can learn. There's someone that worships the right way, and we learn from their good example, but the Bible also records occasions when people did it wrong, and the Bible says that we're to learn from their example as well. You can learn from any example. Whether it be a good or a bad example, there's always an opportunity to grow, and so we, we find before us today a passage that highlights an approach that does not work. In fact, Jesus said that, that it was vain. It was vain. He said it was empty. And I don't want a vain worship. And I don't believe you want a vain worship. And I do believe with God's help today, we can be encouraged and strengthened. And if you're able, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as we look to God's Word today. Mark chapter 7. And I'm going to read through our text, and I hope I won't irritate you, but I'm going to stop a lot in the reading today. There's uh, some background that needs to be understood, and, and uh, we'll begin in Mark chapter 7 and verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now I'm going to read on. Uh, we meet the Pharisees and the scribes. We'll talk about them in our study. Uh, they came unto him, the Bible says, speaking of Jesus, and in a moment, the Bible's going to tell us that the Pharisees and scribes saw the disciples, and that would be the followers of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees and scribes were dispatched from their bosses in Jerusalem. They made a relatively long trip to the region of Galilee, about an 80-mile uh, journey, considering that uh, you couldn't travel it as the crow flies, so to speak, and so they've been sent out from Jerusalem by their bosses, the religious leaders of the day, go check on Jesus, They were suspicious of him. Already in Mark's gospel, they'd had run-ins with Jesus. And we'll see why it is they didn't like him in a moment. Verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. All right? The Bible's telling us here, in essence, they saw the disciples eating without washing their hands. Now... Uh, I'm a big advocate of hand-washing, okay? That's really not what they're talking about here. This was a ceremonial act that the Pharisees would go through to uh, show nationalism. And again, we're going to develop that a little bit more. But the Pharisees watched, the disciples are eating, they didn't wash their hands, and they're like, oh, I can't believe that. Why? Well, the end of verse 3 tells us because it was the tradition of the elders. It was a tradition. How many of you have ever heard tradition, tradition, right? Fiddler on the roof, that's these, all right, that's where this came from. That's the people of which we uh, read here. Verse 4. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Now, again, I don't want to bug you, but we've got to understand all this. So we've got an example here. The Pharisees and scribes are upset with Jesus because his followers. Are you getting this? It's like third-degree anger here. I'm mad at you because your friends are eating without washing hands, and we do that because it's a tradition that we have received from our fathers. And the Bible makes the point in verse 4 that there were many other things, many other traditions, and the Bible uses the word near the end of verse 4, as. As is a comparative word, like such as, and so the Bible says, they, they, did, they did these traditions, washing hands and other things like, such as, and the Bible says that they would uh, wash cups, pots, brazen vessels, and, and of tables, now again, the Bible's not talking here about doing the dishes, in fact, the word wash there, it, it has the same uh, uh, history as, as our word baptize, it was a ceremonial cleansing, and this was a tradition, and so washing hands, we add to that these others, stick with me, we're going to keep moving here, verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? Now, I want want to make the point. They didn't say, why don't the disciples obey the Bible? That's not what they said. They said, how come the disciples don't do it the way we've always done it? Because that's the way it's always been done, you know. They go on to say, but eat bread with unwashing hands. He, this is Jesus, answered and said unto them. Now, I'm going to read on. I want to make a statement. And uh, you all can dispute it. Don't do it now, please. You'll embarrass me. I believe if Jesus Christ spoke in the close to 400,000 churches in America today, I believe his message would be received no better than it was in his own day. And you remember how his earthly ministry uh, ended, physically speaking. We sing, oh, how I love Jesus. Well, let's listen to Jesus preach right now, okay? Okay. What does he say? Verse 6. Well hath Esaias prophesied of you hypocrites. Now, how's that for an opening line? Okay. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus, in essence, says, you know, Isaiah had it right when he called you all hypocrites. You offer up a a lip service, but your heart's all wrong in this thing. Verse 7. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines. Now, what are doctrines? That's what we would say the teachings of Scripture. Doctrine is the glue that holds our church together. Doctrine is the foundations upon which lives and marriages and families are built. Doctrine is truth from God. And the Bible says in verse 7, they teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as such as, remember that word, the washing of pots and cups. But in verse 8, he takes it even further and a lot of other things, and many other things. So it's been added to even more. Verse 9, And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Now he said, that sounds pretty bad. It was. Moses was the author that God used to write the law. First five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, that was... The book that these people go to for uh, the law, for the teaching. And Moses taught, listen, you need to honor your father and mother. And he said, that's an honor that is to go to death. The the, the safety net in society wasn't some government program. This was the safety net. Oh, you have a family member that got hurt on the job, and they're going to be recovering for a little while? Well, the family needs to band together and help that person. And the highest person on the proverbial pecking order of the family was mom and dad. And the teaching was this, you kids be good to your parents. And all the parents said, "Amen." And if you don't, you're going to die of the death. Okay, and that's not a good way to die of the death, you know. And so this was a big deal. It was serious. You're going to die of the death. Verse eleven. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and he suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. What a terrible thing to make God's word of no effect, and they—they've they've done it here through tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such things, uh, many such like things do ye. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, "Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand." Jesus is pleading with them, "Listen to me, but don't just listen and hear sounds. I want you to get this, understand." He says. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I want you to go back with me, please, to verse 7. I thought today we'd just stand the entire service. Is that okay? I didn't forget about you. Verse 7. The Bible says there, Howbeit in vain do they worship me. Specifically today, I want us to think on these words. In vain. Do they worship me? In vain, empty, waste, nothing to it. In vain do they worship. Jesus concluded his remarks by saying, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And I hope we brought our spiritual ears with us today and that we'll work together. Our Father, we thank you. We praise you that the word is perfect. May we learn and study and grow. Bless this service. Help each person here today. May your will be accomplished in this time We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Bible is comprised of 66 books and about 40 different authors over a couple thousand years, and the 66 books of the one Bible have been divided into two sections. We call them the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you come to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and you think of the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, you know there's a couple pages in between the Old and the New Testament, and those pages represent a period of time called the intertestamentary period, uh, uh, sometimes called the silent years, about a 400-year period of time where it seemed as though heaven was silent. It seemed like God wasn't talking. No one was hearing from him, and and it was a time where prophetically it was silent, but practically there was a lot going on. Historians reveal to us that during the silent time, the 400 silent years, there were groups being formed and societies coming together and cultures being shaped and traditions being encouraged, and there were some good things happening during that time, and, and there were some bad things happening as well. Two of the more prominent groups that emerged from those silent years were groups that got off to a great start. We meet these groups in verse 1 of our study where the Bible says, then came together unto the Pharisees and certain of the scribes. So we, we meet the Pharisees and we meet the scribes. The Pharisees were a group that, that got off to a good start. Their goal was essentially this, to pre- preserve the Jewish way of life. There had been many foreign influences. They knew what it was to live as captives, and they knew what it was to live in a land under oppression. The Pharisees had as their main desire, we want to preserve our ideology, our philosophy. They were nationalists, and I don't think there's anything wrong with a person who loves their country saying, I want to preserve my culture, I don't want to water it down with other influences coming in. Let's not forget who we are in all of this. There's something good in that type of mindset. And so we see the Pharisees got started off that way, but also we find in the Pharisees that they were a group that not only were interested in the kingdom in which they were living, they were interested in the coming of the kingdom of God. There were some good things in the beginning of their, of their time. And then we read also of the scribes. They got off to a good start. And there were good men in the Bible who were scribes. Ezra, for example, in the Old Testament was a scribe. And scribes were people who were experts in the law, and scribes were people who became what J. Vernon McGee calls hair splitters. They were all the time studying the Bible, and a lot of times they were looking at it more from an attorney's standpoint rather than from a servant of God's standpoint. And so both of these groups forgot in time that the law was for man, not man for the law. They were more interested in the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. They each sought to find their own righteousness or goodness through their deeds or through their affiliations. And there's a word for a philosophy that thinks we can gain in our standing with God through our actions or our associations, and the word is legalist. These groups were legalists. They thought through manipulating the law they could enhance their standing with God. Legalists. Now, for this reason, they made thousands of rules from the traditions they received from their fathers. And with each passing generation, more and more credence was given to the tradition. Great, 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 great granddad did it this way, and the next guy did it. And before long, you had people giving more credence to tradition than to truth. And you have people arguing with one another, as is the case in our text, because a tradition that wasn't the degree of spiritual truth, scriptural truth, a tradition was not kept. And so tradition was elevated, and and we see that they were losing a perspective. And after a while, it became for them more about traditions than truth. And for this reason, they had a problem with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, He is truth. And already in the book of Mark, they confronted Jesus, having problems with him. And and Jesus was not against traditions, per se. I don't find that he preached a message against the Pharisees washing their hands, but he was first and foremost, truth. Some traditions are fine, but when they supersede truth, there's a problem. And So as we look at this text today, some, some, some facts just broil to the surface. We can learn much from the negative example of the Pharisees and the scribes. You see, first of all, in our study today, that they enjoyed trials. Now, I'm not talking about trials that we go through in life. I'm talking about a legal proceeding. You see, they loved the law, and they looked at themselves ultimately as the judge, and they looked at you and everybody else in the world as the person on trial. They just loved to look around and see what they could find wrong in everybody else's life. They just loved that kind of thing. That's the way they were put together. In fact, look at the last three words of verse 2 with me, if you would. The Bible tells us of these that they found fault. Let me share with you why they found fault. Because that's exactly what they were looking for. And how many of you like me have discovered that we often find exactly what we are looking for in life? The hummingbird and the vulture, the buzzard, they're both indigenous birds of Southern California deserts, but they find very different things. One finds beautiful flowers that smell good and and the other finds dead and rotting flesh. Why? They find what they're looking for. And the Pharisees and the scribes found exactly what it was they were hunting for. Fault. They just loved to say fault. They'd have been good judges in a tennis match. That, That was their favorite word. They loved to observe others and say, Fault, fault, did it wrong. Again, you're wrong. They loved that kind of thing. There are few things as brutal and heartless as cold, calculating religion. The condescension and arrogance of someone who really believes they are inherently better than somebody else, that is a key attribute in the life of those that have a vain and empty worship. And man, that typifies this group that was confronting Jesus Christ here. Now, I'm not talking about not having a good judgment a a righteous judgment discernment a keen mind Jesus talked about that and in John 7:24 he said judge not according to the appearance but judge righteous Judgment. What Jesus was saying is not the judgmental attitude we're talking about. Yes, we all have judgments to make. You might go to a grocery store and there's two items similar, different manufacturers. You've got to make a judgment. We all need wisdom. I'm not talking about good judgments in life, but the, the negative mindset. And what we're talking about here is the heart that arrives on a scene just looking for something with which to find fault. I went to a seminar one time and there was 13 hours of teaching from one guy. And I said, man, this was helpful. And and someone said to me, you know, but there was one thing. And I just thought, really? This guy just talked 13 hours and you're upset about one thing. I kind of got the feeling that he went there to hear that one thing, you know. That's kind of how the Pharisees and the scribes were. I mean, they couldn't say church was a blessing today. They'd say someone sat in my seat. One thing. My parking spot was full, whatever, you know. There's always that one thing. And we discovered early on in our study that a foundation of worship is humility. We all stand in need, and when we see God for who he is, we will be most concerned with the needs in our own lives, not with the needs in the lives of others. It it begins with, Lord, I want to be right before you. The attitude that this group possessed, it prevented them from worshiping with any sincerity. They were actually portraying what they thought looked good. They were playing the part. And folks, Jesus is not impressed when we play the part. I got to thinking on this this week, and I took some time to thumb through some pages and come up with some ways Jesus referred to the Pharisees and the scribes. Listen listen to the, the terms that Jesus used to talk about this group. Blind guides. Fools. Now, no one likes to be called a fool in our day and age, but believe me when I tell you in this time it meant something much stronger. He said, your widened sepulchre is full of dead men's bones. sepulchre was a tomb. Jesus said, you're all shining up on the outside. You're a beautiful-looking tomb. And they would shine their tombs. People walk by, see a shiny tomb, and think much of that person. He said, you're all shiny on the outside, but on the inside, you're just like a grave. You're full of dead men's bones. I'm telling you, Jesus, man, he would just say it. He said, you're unclean. Again, no one in our day and age wants to be called unclean, but, but this had a, a deeper meaning in the time of Christ. Ceremonially, you're separated because you're dirty, man. You're serpents. You're a generation of vipers. You're hypocrites. One time he just said, you're graves. Jesus let them know he, he wasn't appreciative of that religious crowd that tried to put off as though they were better than everybody else. Incidentally, if we took the time, we could equally see how compassionate the words of Christ were to what we would qualify as the worst sinners he came across. He was always so kind to them. (laughs) Jesus shellacked the religious crowd. They tried to get all puffed up. Man, those people that were humble and broken and going through it. Jesus always had time for them. And, and he'd, he'd uh, uh, give them kind words. And so if we want to avoid a vain worship, we got to see we, we can't be the kind of people that enjoy trials in the sense of putting others on trial. But we also find in this text they elevated traditions. And verse 3 makes this point very clear. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Now, So what happens here? They said, you know, for the Pharisees and and everybody, everybody's doing it. For us Pharisees and everybody, you know, we don't eat unless we wash our hands. Why? Because that's the tradition of the elders. We've always done it that way. They, they had traditions that they elevated above truth. They sought to hold everyone else to the way it had always been done before. And what we find here is pretty interesting. We, we find that the disciples ate some food without washing their hands. Now, again, uh, none of this has to do with germs. I'm all for washing your hands. But, but uh, uh, this was a ceremonial thing. And, and as I began to study this, I read some background on what this hand washing was all about. I read different things by different authors, but in general, it it went back to some specific Old Testament scriptures. But as they developed the the tradition, it went back, and I'll tell it to you this way. I want you to imagine uh, early on in Old Testament days, uh, a kindly uh, elderly man coming home from the marketplace, having encountered Gentiles, and humbly washing his hands before God. And as he's doing so in his heart saying, God, I've been out in the world today. And life gets so busy and we get to running here and there and doing business. And, and God, I just want to humbly wash my hands before you as a remembrance, as a reminder that I belong to you. And as a Jew, he could very rightly say, we're a chosen people for you, God. We're, we're your special people. And so, God, I'm washing all of the world off me today humbly in your presence because I love you. Now extrapolate that down the road several hundred years. And now you have a guy, we'll have this one, not a kind elderly man, we'll have this a young punk, okay? And he gets home from the market and he's washing his hands because, man, those people are so filthy down there and I'm better than everybody. And you kind of get the sense of where it began and where it degenerated to, where it ended up. It became something it was never supposed to be. Rather than a humble act of remembrance, it, it grew beyond the intention When I was in Australia, there was such a sweet spirit of unity. It's a beautiful country, a little over 20 million people, roughly the size of the continental United States. About 5% of those people would attend any kind of church on Sunday. It's a vastly atheistic nation. And the pastors and missionaries in that area, they're they're just passionate and zealous about seeing something accomplished in that place for the glory of God. They're praying for revival, and there's a great spirit of unity. By the way, you show me a church where there's a lack of unity, I'll show you a church where the Holy Spirit is obligated not to work. And I was so blessed by it all, it was palpable. These guys loved each other, they were on the same team. It wasn't, uh, you know, trying to get one over the other, it was, it was working together. And, and I mentioned to the pastor, I said, man, there seems to be such a great spirit here, and it, it was good and pleasant to ex- express it biblically. And he said, we're blessed. He said, we have our problems from time to time. And I said, oh, you do? And, and he looked at me and he smiled, and then he said, it's mostly from young American missionaries. I thought, well, wait a minute. We support some young American missionaries, some of them in this part of the world. And uh, uh, I said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? And uh, he started laughing. He said, I'm just kidding. But he said, sometimes we'll have missionaries from the United States trained in one part of the country or another, and they come to Australia, and they essentially say, if you don't do it the way, not only that we did in the United States, but in our part of the United States. You're not doing it the right way, and certainly not as good as we are. And he said they try to Americanize us, they try to bring the culture in. I thought that was interesting. They bring American traditions into a foreign culture, and of course it doesn't resonate. The concern, friends, should not be if our worship is pleasing to others. Our concern should be: is it pleasing to God? Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved, living to please other people. That is a fool's errand, but living to please God, it brings joy. I remember years ago going to work at a large established church in Tennessee, and when I arrived, I was wearing the only suit I had. It was was light. I think they call it houndstooth, white with black, but from a distance, it just looks like a a light suit, and uh, our pastor was so gracious, he welcomed us when we arrived, and then I remember he asked us, we arrived on a Sunday night, and, and he asked me, he said, Steve, do you have a, a dark suit? And I said, no, sir. He said, all right, come by and see me tomorrow morning. He took me to the suit store. And he bought me a dark double-breasted suit. He said, Steve, in our area, this is a real traditional church, and people have expectations. And I, he said, I want my pastoral staff to wear a dark suit like this. And uh, he said, people just, they, they have an expectation. He said, you'll notice even sometimes the ladies, they won't wear some colors till after this holiday or that one. And I don't, I don't get into all that. But, but he said all that. And, and he said, so I want you to wear this suit. That was their tradition. And since it's not a biblical issue, who cares what he asked me to, to wear? He, he's the boss there. I'm there to serve him, help him. And I mean, he could ask me to wear a jumpsuit. You know, I said, great, I'll wear it. And I was there 104 more Sundays. I wore that suit every single Sunday. I did have it dry clean a few times, but uh, wore that suit. That was their tradition in their culture. Neither good nor bad, just the way it goes. When I came back to where I'm from, I, I sometimes wear a dark suit, sometimes I don't. So last Sunday night, we had a service that looked very, very different than what another service would look like, and, and I'm fine with all of that. Why? Because traditions don't rise to the level of truth. You might have a tradition in one place and not another place, and one group of people may enjoy a tradition. We, we've got to understand that, that uh, uh, the, the, the tradition itself is not necessarily good or bad, but we need to make sure we're not elevating traditions above truth, or they all become bad. Notice verse 5, the Bible says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders? It's interesting to me. Their problem was so clearly not with, with what we would call the Bible, the law. It was a tradition. And Jesus dealt directly with them because of the importance of this subject. Let's look to verse 6 and 7 again. How did Jesus confront this? Well, hath he say is, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What was Jesus saying in essence? Our heart is where worship must begin, not in some activity, in our heart. You see, we can contort our flesh to fit into some system in one place or another, but our worship will still be vain if our heart's not right. And Jesus is emphasizing the value of, of the heart in all of this. And so these that had a vain worship, they enjoyed trials, they elevated traditions. I want us to see that they eliminated teaching, and that's the natural progression here. The importance of the Bible goes aside when it becomes more about ritualism. And I could cite prominent religions in the world today where the average person, they don't even read the Bible, they don't take it to church because it's just all about the religion, and they've got their, their, you know, their grand guy that tells them how to do it, and, and that's the way it is, and that's not the way it needs to be. So we see that as they elevate traditions, they eliminated teaching when traditions of men are on the rise, teaching of the Bible is on the decline. By going through the motions of vain worship, they missed the power in the Word. In fact, they sought to use the law to evade the teachings found in the law, just as you'd expect a leader to do. And I've had people tell me, they'd say, Pastor, I've seen such and such couple, and they look so happy, and like they got it all together. By the way, looks can be deceiving. Sometimes they're not. But, oh, I wish I could be like them, or I'll see uh, someone say, they, they seem to have children that are just this, just this, and and they got it over there, and they seem to really know a lot about this. And, and the statement will be, the Christian life, Life seems to be working for them, but I just can't seem to find it working for me. And the fact is, if we have a vain worship, there's no power in it. None. Listen to what Jesus says. We'll look to verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other things, such like, uh, and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And he gives them a real-life example of what's going on here. He says, For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift. By whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Now, I I could read on. I want us to stop here. Guys, look up here for a moment if you would. Sometimes we come to a text like this in Scripture and we think, what? We just blast right past it. Please don't do that. Uh, Jesus concluded his remarks by saying, please hear what I'm saying, understand what I'm saying. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus said, you know, through all of this, what you've done, it's, it's really missing the point. He said, you're missing the whole law yourselves. He said, for example... Moses gave the commandment, honor your father and mother and to care for them, as we've seen. And, and uh, he said, you found a way to buy yourself out of doing the law. We sometimes hear politicians pontificating on the need for more taxes to meet the needs in society. I want you to know that when they seek to cite scriptures to justify their tax increase, I want you to understand this. The Bible was not written to nations. It was written to people. And regardless of what the government does, whether we go socialist, communist, or Marxist, or whichever way it is we want to go or where we want to stay, the point I'm saying is this. It matters not where you live. If you're a person of the book, we need to understand there's a personal responsibility to do the things God asks us to do and to tie into the analogy of Christ. Care, benevolence, love, helping the hurting, and on and on. And we see that these people found a way to justify their... Lack of fulfilling that part of the law by saying, well, I've already done this. They they paid their way out of doing what they knew was right. Jesus was talking about these legalists. They were to take care of their parents. They found a way not to to use an illustration or an analogy. There's a need in the life of mom and dad. The family comes to the oldest son and says, hey, we, we need to help mom and dad. And he says, I can. I don't have any money. Said, so what are you talking about? You don't have any money. You've got money. He said, No, I don't. It's Corban. See the word in the text, Corban, a gift. What Corban was was when money was be was set aside and it was earmarked. I'm giving this to God. I'm giving this to God. And if you would earmark it Corbin, they added through their tradition, you could do that. And that way, if someone comes to you and says, I have a need, can I have some money? You could say, I don't have any money to give you because I've already earmarked this as I'm going to give it to God. Now, historians say many people would invest those funds and they'd keep the interest. Some said at the end of their life, they would finally give it off after they've used it all they could. Other people said they found ways to keep it. The bottom line is they did not obey the law because they created a system, as lawyers would do through their traditions, that usurped the law. They said, we've got a neat little trick that helps us to justify our behavior that's against God. And that's exactly what happens when you live the kind of life they were living. They eliminated teaching. It was all a gimmick to keep from supporting their families. There was a man that was pouring over the Bible, and his friend looked at him and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm looking for a loophole. And friends, there's no loophole when it comes to the Bible. We are not to approach the Bible as lawyers trying to find a problem in God's argument so we can cross-examine. We're to come as humble servants who say, God, I want to I do everything you want me to do. You see, Jesus answered and said unto them in Matthew twenty-two, twenty-nine, 29, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Why is there many times a lack of power in our lives and in our churches today? It goes right back to what we've been talking about. Uh, th- there seems to be an elimination of teaching because of an elevation of traditions. And Jesus makes it clear. I'll tell you why there's no power, he says, because you don't know the Scriptures. And the power in a life of worship is in knowing and growing and in showing the teachings we find in the Bible. It is vain worship when we seek to please God apart from his word. And the natural progression of this and the final thought we'll consider today is they eluded truth. Verse 13 is amazingly telling. Jesus said this, in essence, you've made the word of God of no effect through your tradition. In other words, they tried to be right with God through their actions rather than through the truth of the word of God. Folks, please hear me today. There is no worship without truth. None. None. You see, the Bible in John 4, 24 says, God's a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And we cannot come to God our way on our terms and in our traditions. We come to God in truth. And friends, Jesus is truth. Jesus told us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And we read in the Bible that the Bible itself is truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Now, I have to tell you, it's easy for me to pile on the Pharisees and the scribes. I don't like them. It's easy for me to preach a message and condemn their condemning behavior. These are the guys that crucified Jesus Christ right here. And by the way, they found legal justification because that's what lawyers do. They don't want to follow the law. They, 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 some of your attorneys, I don't mean you, I mean these lawyers, okay. They craft a way to do what they want to do and find legal justification. This was the crowd that crucified Jesus. The atheists of the day weren't the ones saying, kill this guy. It was the religious establishment who had their traditions. We've always done it this way, and if you do it different, you're no good. We have this at work today. Did you know back in the day pastors preached against pianos? And microphones and screens and just stuff. I mean, anything new that comes along, I suppose it could all be used for bad. But, I mean, something like a, a microphone that helps me to uh, project it out. Well, the world uses that. We shouldn't use it in here. And it's like, why? Well, we, we've never used one at this point. Well, it's just been invented. And, and these traditions can, can take us over. And, and it's, it's easy for me to pile on people like the Pharisees and the scribes. But let me tell you most what bothers me about these people. When I look in the mirror, I see myself in them. Because I have it in me to find fault, because that's what I'm looking for. I have it in me to justify the way I want to go about it wrong, because that's how I want to do it. And I, I have it in me to connive and deceive. And You see, if real worship is living this life with God's glory in mind, and it is. We need to know what brings glory to God. And we learn that in the Bible. We learn it by embracing truth, not eluding truth. And as Jesus concluded his remarks here, he asked not just for a hearing, he asked for understanding. He pointed out that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And in verse 15, he said, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. Jesus is not saying that what we do is of no consequence, but what Jesus was revealing here, that if our heart is right, the action will follow, a life of worship will begin. I read a part of an article recently on uh, raising dogs in Alaska to pull the sleds. And uh, I wish I have read all of the article, but I read enough out of it to get a story, so that was good, but Talk about these these huskies. They, they train them. What they do is they get an incredibly short leash, tiny little thing. And they drive a stake in the ground and they, they take this dog and they, they get him up to that uh, stake and, and he's chained on now with, with virtually no space at all. And he does probably the same thing I do or you do. We, he, he goes nuts. He's confined. It drives him crazy. He pulls, he yanks, he tries to drag and he just thrashes about and he just goes crazy. And then they take a Still very short leash, but relatively a longer leash. And they, in time, through a process, take that dog and they, they put him on the harness that is attached to the sled. And that dog, after being on that short leash, he just says, I'm out of here. And he just starts thrashing and he runs as quick as he can. And in time, he figures it all out. But, but that initial instinct, they say, is from the confinement. And then he gets that much liberty and he's like, forget it, I'm out of here. And I think there's a great analogy in there for parenting. I think for uh, being a boss at work, for being a leader. I I think there's an analogy for all of it in there. But this was the Pharisees and scribes model. To put people under some strenuous system that they were in control of. But Jesus sought rather to capture our hearts with a complete and unconditional love. And when our hearts are where they need to be, the result will be a life that models its behavior after Jesus Christ rather than after a set of traditions. You see, when someone is coerced into a system, there's no joy. When someone is coerced in some system that some overbearing legal system, they're not happy. Have you ever seen a happy bureaucrat? They're all crabby, aren't they? Unless there's one visiting here today, then they're not all crabby, but most of them are crab. Now, I've got the lawyers and the bureaucrats mad at me, brother, tell us. Uh, why? They're just dealing with rules all day, and it drives them cuckoo. They just can't stand it, and everyone that comes in is a problem because it means more... Re- uh, it's just nobody under that kind of a system is is happy at all, but a person of faith, there's no joy in that. No joy at all. You see, when we get to the heart of worship, we find that it is a worship that begins in our heart. When I was done preparing this message, and I'm nearly done delivering it, I thought, you know, of all the messages we've had this year, I can't think of one that truly gives the spirit that we find in our theme verse as a church for this year. It totally, to me, identifies the spirit in 1 Samuel 12, 24, our theme verse, where the Bible says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart. Why? Why? The answer is this, for consider how great things he's done for you. What's our motivation in all this? Why would we want to have a a, a reverential respect that gives glory to God? Why would we want to serve God in truth? And why would we want to do so with all of our heart? If I can bring it into modern day vernacular, it's because our God is great. He is awesome. He loves us. And through that, we find what we need to compel us to live a life of worship not some arduous law. I'm not advocating a lawless life. I'm saying the motivation's got to run much deeper. We see that we serve a great God. I wonder, are you worshiping him today? Our Father, thank you for this study, this time. I pray that you'd open hearts and that you would help all of us to uh, look into your word and let your word look into us. Lead us and guide us. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and we'll be on our way shortly. And Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, there was something in that for me. And if that's the case, I'm so very thankful. My prayer is always that God would use the message for his glory and for your good, for my good. I need it. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, I, I found some value in that study. And, and friend, I don't know where you are today. Maybe... Maybe it's that matter of finding fault. Last Sunday it was, it's just been too cold around here, and this Sunday it's been too hot, and it's just that, that ability to find the fault and everything. You just, you can see it. Maybe you'd say, you know, it, it, it really ought not be that way for me. I, I can do better than that for the Lord by His grace. Maybe for you it's not fault-finding, but it would be more a matter of justifying doing legal maneuverings, double backflips as an attorney would do to try to add to the law, to make, to just all the time justifying. Maybe you'd say, you know, Pastor, as we went through this study together, perhaps you would say to me, you're not the only one who could look in the mirror and find room for improvement in these areas. I wonder today, are there those who'd be willing to lift a hand in this private time and say, Pastor, there was something in that study that was of use for me in my life today. Are there those like that who'd be willing to lift up a hand? Pastor, there was something in there for me. That's great. Thank you. you may put your hands down. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know, Pastor, you talked a lot about knowing God and His unconditional love and His acceptance. And maybe you'd say, Pastor, you even mentioned that there's no amount of works or rules we can keep that would help us to have a relationship with God, to increase our standing with God. And friend, listen, maybe you're here today and the reality is you are not certain in your heart that you have a relationship with God. And maybe you would say, Pastor, I've thought about what's going to happen when my life is over. And perhaps your, your answer is, is today, honestly, I have no idea. I'm so uncertain. Well, maybe in the privacy of this time, you'd be willing to say, Pastor, as the message was given. That, that was a part of what was kind of stirring around in my mind, in my heart. I'm just not 100% sure if I were to die today, I'd spend eternity in heaven. I, I'm not sure where I stand with God in that regard. Are there those today in the privacy of this time you'd be willing to lift a hand? Pastor, that's, that's kind of something that was in my heart today. You can pray for me. You can pray for me. I, I'm not sure that I have a relationship with God. Maybe there are other decisions. You've been saved and not yet scripturally baptized. Or the Lord is prompting you to unite with the Coastline family. But maybe God in His grace, He shared with you today that next that next little step to take in your life. I would never be so bold as to play the part of the Holy Spirit and tell you what that step is. But I hope I may encourage you in Christian love to take it. Follow the Lord's leading. Would you be so kind as to join me in standing, please? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The music's beginning to play. And, Brother Steve's going to lead us in a song today, I Surrender All. If you know the words, as he begins to sing, you can sing along with him. But maybe today, as you're you're thinking on these truths, you'd say, you know something? There is room for growth in my life. Why don't you talk to the Lord about it? We call the front of an auditorium an altar. It's a place of decision, a place of of commitment. Maybe like to spend a moment in prayer. God, help me in my life. If that's the case today, that'd be wonderful. Maybe there's a question about your standing with God, your relationship with God. There are men and ladies at the front who have their copy of God's Word. They'd love to talk with you. Maybe you have someone that uh, is on your heart and you'd like to pray with someone. They'd be happy to pray with you. As the singing begins today, again, if you know the words of this song, sing along, but if God's touched your heart, let's not let this service be vain and empty. If God has put something on your heart, follow His leading. As the singing begins, you come.